0: invite you to join with me in a word of prayer. Lord, I'm grateful for your scriptures. I'm especially grateful this morning for your servant, the Apostle Paul. I pray, Lord, that we would learn from his example. And I pray that each one of us would be so gripped by the truth of the gospel that those around us would also hear it and benefit from it. Now help me as I preach, please, for I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So the word epiphany is oftentimes defined as manifestation, something being revealed or manifested to outsiders. But literally, the word epiphany comes from two Greek words, epi meaning on, and phaneo, which means shining a light. It's it's shining a light on. That's what epiphany means. And so we called this sermon series Light Shining in the Darkness. Because until the gospel comes into a person's life, they are living in darkness, and it takes various forms. So I would say probably at the top of that list, the darkness is defined by ignorance of God, not knowing who God is or being aware that he's present wherever you are because he's everywhere. Another way that darkness has played itself out in people's lives is immoral behavior, unethical things, things that are bad or evil. Another thing would be hatred of others. Another thing would be self-centeredness. But when the gospel, the good news, the light of the gospel, shines in your heart, it dispels that darkness, and there's a 180-degree turn. So the person who was ignorant of God now knows God, not just facts about God, but knows him personally. The person becomes aware that God is present there, right with them. Or the person who is the immoral one, doing bad things, they actually start to live in holiness begin doing good things. This is all empowered by God's Spirit. Or the person who had hatred of others is now starting to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. Why? Well, because you take pity on that person, because you realize they're in darkness as well. Your fight actually isn't against them. They just don't know any better. They're caught up in darkness, and you were once there too. And by God's grace, you're not. And so you're able to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the person who was caught up in self-centeredness now begins to choose service over self. Or I might say ministry over myself. Choosing to minister to the other person instead of insisting on my own ways. That's the one I want to look at today. That's the specific example that I think the text of 1 of, uh, Corinthians deals with today. And the question I want to ask is this. What would cause a person to choose service over self? What would cause a person to put the other person's needs ahead of their own, or the other person's rights ahead of their rights? So in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul is giving one of his famous statements, and we paraphrase this sometimes, being all things to all people. He says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. This is his mission strategy. He also in here says that, he feels such a compulsion to preach the gospel. He says, woe to me if I don't proclaim the gospel. Woe to me. That's verse 16. And I'd like to take verse 23 as my outline for this sermon. So verse 23 says this. I have become, or excuse me, I do, not, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Whatever my mission strategy would be, I do that for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. So the gospel is motivating his mission, but so are the potential converts, the people that would come to Christ, that they would be part of the blessings that Paul is experiencing. Those two things. Now, one of the things I like about Paul is he's one of those personalities that was extreme. Maybe you're like this or you know somebody like this. They say, I work hard and I play hard. Nothing they do is halfway. They're all in when they're in, and they're way out when they're out. He was that kind of a person. And he was really in the darkness, and it was bad. His friend Luke wrote the book that's titled Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And in Acts chapter 9, we get Luke's description of what Paul was like when he was walking in darkness. He says this. By the way, his name was Saul as well. He went by Saul or Paul, depending on context. It says, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, capital W, the way, meaning what we later would call Christianity, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This wasn't just a guy who was irritated that some people were believing Jesus was the Messiah. This was a guy who was breathing threats. He breathed in his air, and when he exhaled it, it came out as a threat and murder. I'm going to kill them all. Try and picture that level of animosity against people. And these are people in another city. He wasn't just frustrated that they were over there. He was going there on a mission to catch them, bind them up, and drag them back to Jerusalem so they could be tried and condemned as heretics. That's intense, right? I mean, work hard, play hard. This was, this was a guy who was so intense. And he was in some real darkness. And the Lord met him. He's on the way to Damascus. The Lord literally gives him blindness. He, he shows him how much he was in darkness by giving him darkness. The Lord appears to him in a blinding light. He cannot see. He hears a voice. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? Paul didn't know Jesus. He says, I'm Jesus. Jesus. And then he's led by his hand, because now he's blind, he's led by his hand into the city. It says he was so shaken up by this that he didn't eat or drink anything for three days. He sat there in darkness, contemplating the words that Jesus had said. And he gets a vision of a man named Ananias, a Christian, coming to him and praying for him so that he can re- receive his sight back. And when this happens, Ananias, who's afraid to go to him because Paul was so murderous, the Lord said, Go, he's my servant. He goes and he prays. Something weird like scales fall off his eyes, and he's able to see again. And Ananias calls him Brother Saul. In other words, you're now a Christian. You're part of the very group you were trying to persecute. You are welcomed in. God's grace is for you. He does a 180-degree turn and now is fully sold out for the Lord. He's fully embraced the gospel. Now, I want to um, ask the question of what is the gospel. It's four books in here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a genre of music, gospel music. But when the Bible talks about the gospel, it means, literally it means the good news, and it's the core message of the faith. And it can be summed up as simple as Jesus died for your sins, or it can be expanded out to include lots of other things. And I thought since we're in 1 Corinthians, we would actually just look at what Paul says in other places about what the gospel is. So in chapter 15, he summarizes it this way. He says, you Corinthians, to you, I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Twice he points out that Jesus' ministry was a fulfillment of what was written in the Old Testament. Christ died, was buried, and then rose on the third day, as predicted. That's a summary of the Gospel. And if you were to jump back to 1 Corinthians 1, there's a little bit more detail that he's got in here about that. Um, In the beginning of his Gospel, he's thanking God for the Corinthians' faith. And he says this I give thanks to my God always for you, Corinthians, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, so that you were not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. The good news is this. We were under the wrath of God in darkness and didn't even know it. And Jesus paid for our sins on that cross and he's gonna sustain us to the very end when he returns. And in that day, we will not be seen as guilty. We will be guiltless because of our faith in him. On top of that, he gives gifts. He has given grace to you. He has blessed you. And elsewhere, he talks about the Holy Spirit being in you and, and sustaining you. All of this is part of the gospel. And Paul experienced all of it personally. And it was so gripping for him that it changed everything. He was going in one direction, and then he turned, and now he was going and living fully for God. So chapter 9 is all about rights. How often do we hear about rights? We like our rights in America. We like our rights in the Western world. We care a lot about our personal rights. Some people who work for justice in the world talk about human rights. We thankfully have something called the Bill of Rights, and we're quoting First and Second Amendment rights and all these different things. We like our rights, and I'm grateful we have them. Paul lists some rights that he had as well in chapter 9 as an apostle. And then he makes the point, although I have these rights, I don't insist on them. In fact, sometimes they get in the way of my ministry, so I'm going to give them up. So he says, as an apostle, do I not have the right to food and drink? Do I not have the right to take along in my ministry a believing wife? And he says, like Peter. You don't typically think of the apostle Peter as being a married man, but he was. In the gospel reading that Luke read for us, Jesus actually heals Peter's mother-in-law. That implies it was his wife's mom. So he was married. And Paul, in in 1 Corinthians 9, says, I have a right to take along a believing wife just like Peter does. So Peter's wife went with him on his ministry. But Paul has chosen not to get married for various reasons. He says, I also have a right to be paid as an apostle and a minister. But I'm choosing not to receive payment because I don't want any obstacles to be in the way of you Corinthians receiving the gospel. I don't want you to say I'm just doing it for money. And so he's got these rights and he's choosing to give them up. And then he gives some examples. And examples are sort of confusing to us. He says, to a Jew, I became as a Jew to win the Jews. And you say, well, wasn't he a Jew? He is a Jew, which is true, except he's a Jew who's found Jesus the Messiah, and the Messiah came and fulfilled and nullified certain things of the old covenant laws, the ceremonial things. So Jesus declared all foods clean. It was possible now for Paul to eat anything he wanted. It was also possible for Paul to go into the house of a Gentile without becoming sacramentally defiled. So he did these things He could do them freely, but he said, when I'm going to minister to the Jews, I become like a Jew under those old rules so that I don't cause them offense. I wonder in your life, are there some rights or freedoms or preferences that you have, that you insist on, that cause other people to stay at arm's length, and they're not able to hear the good news of the gospel if you're a Christian? As far as this this Jew thing, the, the ceremonial laws required certain things. One of them was circumcision for men. And I think this is interesting because the Apostle Paul finds a really nice guy, a Greek guy, who's gifted, and he's called into ministry, and he wants to be part of what's going on. But Paul's going to go into a region that is mostly Jewish. This is from Acts chapter 16. Listen to this. And have sympathy for our friend Timothy. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. And they, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Hey, Timothy, I got this great mission opportunity for you. You want to come? Yeah, I'm in. Hang on a second. We got to do a minor procedure pull down your pants. I mean, I don't know if they check on this in the other places that they go to, but I know that they would have complained. You've got that uncircumcised Gentile with you. His father's a Greek and we know it. And they could say in good conscience, yes, but I personally circumcised him. He is under that rule. If you read Galatians, you find that Paul says circumcision doesn't matter at all. In Christ, it no longer matters. In fact, baptism has superseded the old covenant sign, which was circumcision. So it's not necessary, but he chose not to insist on that right for Timothy so that it wouldn't present an obstacle to those Jews hearing the good news. He also does some things for his own sake, like in, if you read Acts 21, um, Paul purifies himself. He shaves his head with a bunch of other Jews to go through the, the rites of purification that were part of the, the thing back then so that they wouldn't think he was totally against the laws and rules of Moses and the Jews. He did do some of that stuff, but he didn't, he didn't insist on his rights. He cared more about building the bridge with people. He says, to those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law. Now, don't misunderstand that to think he was breaking all the rules and he was doing immoral things. What he's saying is, the Gentiles had freedoms that the Jews did not, and he was exercising those freedoms, eating what he wanted, going into the homes that he wanted to. He was not defiled sacramentally but he wasn't doing immoral things he was just doing what he had to to build bridges with the gentiles he was exercising freedoms there because it helped him and then he says to the weak i became as weak to win the weak well paul was really strong actually he had a ton of gifts he was a top scholar he was a brilliant mind he had roman citizen by citizenship by birth he lists a number of these things in uh, philippians 3 kind of in a way of dismissing them. And he says, all these great things I had, I count them as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. But we do know he had some weaknesses. For instance, he had something that he calls a thorn in the flesh. Scholars think it might be eyesight problems that maybe he had glaucoma or he had a vision problem. It was some kind of physical ailment. And he begged God to take it away three times. And God said, nope, my grace is sufficient for you. And so I think he pointed out that he had these physical ailments to help other people who were weak be encouraged because he also had weakness. And he tells the Corinthians in chapter 2 that when he came to them, he came in fear and trembling. If you track his missionary journeys, he got beat up a lot, physically beaten, stoned, he got arrested, he got put in prison. He was afraid at times to go into a new city and start talking about Jesus because the Holy Spirit was telling him, you're going to suffer much for this gospel. And so he said, when I came to you, Corinthians, I came in fear and trembling. He openly admits that. He's not trying to be all tough all the time. He admitted his weaknesses. In Romans 7, he says, I still struggle with sin. My mind wants to do the right thing, but in my body and my flesh are bad desires, and I do the wrong thing. All of us know what that feels like. Paul admitted it for himself. He wasn't some kind of super apostle. He was a, a sinful man in the grace and grip of God. And he felt that tension, and he admitted it. To the weak, I became as weak to win the weak. And he was a former persecutor. He was forgiven for this, but he never let himself or others forget it. He was going so aggressively in one direction, into the darkness, with hatred against the church, that he persecuted the church, and he recognized that God saved him from that and set him on a new course. And he says, I am the, last, the least of all the apostles. I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church he was always mindful of that. Now, what was his motivation? Well, the gospel's power for him personally had transformed his life, and he wanted so much other people to have it that he was willing to do whatever he had to, sacrifice his own rights, choose ministry over myself. And I wonder if the gospel has gripped your heart that much, if you've realized how many sinful things and dark, how much darkness God has overcome in your own life to bring you to the saving knowledge of Jesus. That 180 degree turn that he made changed him. He was going so wrong into darkness and God turned him around. Have you ever been 100% sure you're right only to find out you were wrong? That feeling will leave a mark. I mean, it's a small thing, but I remember being so sure of a song on the radio. This was like in 1991, I think. This is before there was, you know, Sirius XM with digital album cover and the title of the song and whatever. There was no internet in your pocket to search Google and see who sings this song. There was no, hey Siri, who sings this song? It was just riding in the car, cassette tapes and FM radio. And a song came on the radio by Creedence Clearwater Revival. And my friend Mike was driving the car. And I said, man, I love Creedence Clearwater Revival. I love this song. He goes, that's not CCR. That's not Creedence. I'm like, yes, it is. It was that song, Tall, Cool Woman in a a Black Dress. I was like, yeah, that is. He goes, no, that's the Hollies. I went, no, I've never even heard of the Hollies. What? No, that's Creedence Clearwater Bible. I'm totally sure. If he had had said, I'll bet you $1,000, I would have taken that bet right there. I was so confident. And then he's driving, and he leans over, and he opens the glove box, and he pulls out a cassette tape of the Hollies with that song on it. (laughs) I was like, oh, my goodness. What can you say? I was so sure I was right, and I was completely wrong. And here's the evidence. The the Apostle Paul was like that. He was going into darkness so sure he was right, and he was wrong. And he never forgot that. For the rest of his life, he reminded people, I was a persecutor of the church. I thought I was a good person. I thought I was right, and I was completely wrong. And now God, in his grace, has set me on this new course. I don't deserve to be on this course, but by God's grace, I'm on it. And the Apostle Paul was so transformed by God's grace in his life that he would do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to help other people come to that that same knowledge. What are the obstacles that are holding you back from being a witness to somebody else? Maybe it's that God's grace hasn't gripped your heart like that. You kind of grew up around Christianity and you take it as a basically good thing instead of a totally life-transforming truth. That Jesus has paid for your sins, that he has set you free from the wrath of God, and you are now a son and daughter of God in the body of Christ with the Holy Spirit living in you, and God's gifts present to you, and you will be kept blameless until the very end when he returns. That's life transforming. But I think the Jew and the law and all that sort of stuff, that, it's sort of disconnected for us. So let me give you one illustration from a friend of mine in Pittsburgh, Mrs. C., Mrs. C had three grown children, and they they were married or dating at that point. They had significant others, and Mrs. C was not a race car fan at all, but her kids were. They were totally into NASCAR, and so Mrs. C decided as one way to be able to bridge with her family and their significant others, she created a thing she called the NASCAR Cafe. On Sunday afternoons, she would make a crock pot full of food and have all kinds of stuff at her house and put NASCAR on the big TV, and they all came over every Sunday during the season, and they watched racing, auto racing, and they had a meal. And she did this so that she could share the gospel with them, so she could check in on their lives, so she could see how things were going, so she could pray with them. It was a choice of ministry over myself. I'm sure there are other things she would have rather done personally on that Sunday afternoon, all those Sunday afternoons. But she was willing to do that as a way to build a bridge for ministry because she believed so much in the gospel and wanted her family to have the gospel. What bridge might there be for you to build? What right are you insisting on that you might want to set aside, even though you have that right, set it aside so that this other person then can hear the gospel I want to encourage you in closing, I want to encourage you to look again at the darkness you were in and how Jesus brought his light into it. And thank him for that, praise him for that. And I want you to think of a place in your life where you could lay down some right or some preference or something that you're insisting on that's keeping somebody else from being able to hear the good news that you have. We're going to sing a sermon response song called Take My Life, and it's sort of a prayer. So as we sing it, I want you to make it your prayer. And I'm actually going to say a prayer right now before we we join in that song. So would you please pray with me? Lord, I thank you again for the example of the Apostle Paul. I pray for each one of us that you would help the gospel go so deep into our lives and hearts that we're willing to do anything to help others hear it. I pray, Lord, that you would take our lives and let them be useful for you. Help us to choose ministry over myself. I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.